Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And welcome to another Slotcast on WIBAFM and the iHeartRadio app. Joining us now, Dr. Jeff Pothoff. And you've probably seen him on television. He's done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews. He is the UW Health Chief Quality Officer. And he's also involved in some other pretty important things at the university. Doctor, thanks for coming on with us today. Well, good to be on the show. All right. Well, what else is you? Are you involved with MedFlight as well? Is that right? Yeah, I'm a MedFlight physician for the UW MedFlight program, uh, in addition to an emergency physician working down in the University Hospital Emergency Department and uh, everyone from over at the American Center, that campus on the east side of Madison. Wow. Where do you find the time? <laughs> you know, I ask myself that same question regularly. All right. You're, so you're... Uh, you're known around the world now. These uh, interviews have been all over the place, and yet you uh, you grew up in Little Randolph, Wisconsin, Dutch country. You, you know, you're absolutely you know right. Some of the winningest basketball programs in state history come from that little town of Randolph, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, hard to imagine uh, that uh, this would turn into you know something. I didn't uh, go to medical school or become a doctor because I thought I'd be doing TV interviews, but um, you know, UW Health when we first started planning this. We said, you know, really important part of this is going to be communicating to the public, you know, what they should do to keep themselves and their families safe. There's going to be all kinds of information out there. Uh, and, and that's really kind of how it started, not realizing that it would, you know, grow into what it actually has become. So in 2019, I started hearing interviews actually on the CBC out of Canada with this journalist named Laurie Garrett. And she started talking about pandemics and what was going on in China. This is you know, late December. Uh, when did this become on your radar screen? You know, I think we first started hearing about it, not necessarily, you know, taking active efforts against it, probably either late December, early January. Uh, and, um, you know, had our eye on it. At that point, there wasn't much good information. We, we didn't know if, if we could completely trust what we were hearing coming out of China. Uh, it was kind of mixed. Uh, I would say later January, going into February, I uh, started to get more concerned that this was actually maybe going to be something. Uh, and uh, at, at that point, started to make you know plans for you know what, what would we have to do to be ready for something like this. How was it that you kind of became the main spokesman for this at the UW? Yeah, you know, it, it kind of just happened by chance. It wasn't something that uh, I think I myself or anyone else were seeking out. When we first started planning for how we would, as a you know pretty large health system uh, in the state, respond to this it was uh, myself and uh, a partner uh dr R- or not doctor but uh, rick ransom uh, our president of the madison region hospitals who were kind of tasked to bring the team together uh to start looking at that uh you know and as part of that when you know uh, some of the media stations in town first started saying hey can we talk to someone uh i was like well i can talk to you i kind of know what's going on uh not really realizing uh what i was signing up for you know it's interesting i i live in the hilldale area so not not very far from your hospital when this all started in the very beginning and no one was wearing masks, um, many Asian students on campus were wearing masks. Uh, can, can America learn something from the East when it comes to cold and flu season and masks? 
could they become a permanent part of the prevention of not just fighting pandemics, but fighting cold and flu season? Yeah, you know, I think in retrospect, uh, we did learn a lot, you know, and the reason you saw individuals uh, from Asian backgrounds wearing masks, is they had some experience with these uh, types of things in the past. Now, not maybe worldwide pandemic, but certainly epidemics, uh, whether it was SARS, uh, which some people will remember, uh, you know, MERS was another one, and uh, it, it became almost culturally ingrained in those areas of the world uh, to wear masks. Now, here in the United States, uh, we were hedging, you know, early on in this pandemic, you can find uh, audio tapes of me saying, you know what, unless you have symptoms, you don't have to wear a mask. Uh, you know, and a lot of that was on small studies uh, and previous knowledge of viruses, which, you know, before COVID-19, we didn't really have viruses that would spread asymptomatically between people, i.e. like you, you weren't a risk to someone else if you didn't have symptoms. COVID changed that. Uh, and oftentimes it took more than just, you know, talking to spread the virus. You had a cough or sneeze and COVID changed that. So, you know, our knowledge quickly changed uh, and we're like, wow, we have to be wearing masks. Uh, and then, you know, we almost did an experiment within the pandemic, which was, you know, we didn't see much cold. We didn't see much flu. We didn't see a lot of even pediatric respiratory illnesses this last year. Uh, so I do think there may be a role for wearing a mask, uh, you know, probably not in like the rigid mandated way that we needed to do it, you know, this year. Uh, but just from, a, you know, keeping people healthy, uh, you know, keeping workforce healthy, uh, keeping our kids healthy in school, we may see more of it. We know that it works now. How important is it to get people to understand the premise that nothing is static during a pandemic? In other words, when people, well, well, you told us a month ago this, but now that you're saying this, you kind of have to be fluid on these things, don't you? Yeah, you know, this was something that was really difficult as we went through the pandemic, uh, because for the most part, people's interface with science uh, is with science that we understand very, very well. If someone comes to me and they say, hey, I'm having chest pain, doc, uh, I can say, well, based on your risk factors, you know, there's about this percent chance that it's your heart. And I can go down the line and give them what sounds like very concrete data on what exactly is going on with them. This was a brand new disease. We were learning as we were trying to educate the public. And uh, science, you know, at least for the first, you know, year or two, it's messy. Like people are doing research studies. We're learning more. Uh, and, and I think it's walking that fine line between losing credibility because people are like, well, you keep on saying something different. You must not know what you're talking about versus educating them on, you know, science changes. And, you know, it's good that we actually change our tune as we learn more. We don't let our egos get in the way and hold the same line as the data changes. Uh, but, you know, that's messy. It's confusing. Uh, and you really have to have your ear to the ground to understand, you know, what should we be doing today? Because uh, things are changing so quickly. I, I spend a lot of time in Canada. So I remember the whole SARS outbreak in Toronto. And I'm sure you remember that as well. And we're keeping an eye on it. How did that just stop? <laughs> it's just, I mean, and when, when I think about it, it took a huge economic toll for a brief period mm -hmm. in Toronto. The, is, as soon as the cases went down, they had a massive concert to raise money with the Rolling Stones and Rush. They put, they put a whole bunch of people together. What, why did that stop, but this one didn't? You, you know, some of it might have been luck there, but I think the thing that makes uh, COVID-19 such a formidable opponent uh, is this idea uh, that there are a lot of people who don't get very sick or don't get sick at all. They have no symptoms, but yet they're able to spread the disease. Versus these other diseases, um, you have to have symptoms, typically, in order to spread it. Uh, and that makes the public health efforts uh, so much easier because now you, you just need to identify people who have symptoms. And if you stop them from spreading it, you know, you're okay. Oftentimes when you're sick, you don't want to go to these big events. 
uh, where COVID-19 broke all of that was that people felt absolutely fine. I mean, we had, you know, the quarterback of the Badgers playing a heck of a game who had COVID-19. Uh, people don't know that they're sick. Uh, they can go to these events, infect other people, uh, and the virus just does a great job of springboarding uh, because it, it, it doesn't actually make in, uh, everyone sick and certainly doesn't kill everyone. actually makes it a more effective pathogen than, say, uh, a pathogen that you know makes you sick and you die in two days. That one actually has a much harder time passing because the people that it makes sick don't have the opportunity to spread it. So for these people that think the vaccine is something completely new and this is really unproven, that SARS outbreak from China in Canada uh, was the springboard for scientists working on vaccines. Am I, am I mistaken there or am I correct? Yeah, no, you're right. It's both of those. And then uh, the other thing, especially with some of the vaccines that we have, these mRNA vaccines, that, that technology isn't new. It's being used in vaccines. But the real kind of impetus of that technology uh, was actually to target cancer. Uh, so you would actually teach yourselves how to create uh, an antigen that would train your immune system to attack a cancer you have. Now, uh, we're not too far down the path on the cancer part of it, but, but yeah, these types of diseases that have huge global implications uh, are why scientists are so focused on this technology, uh, these types of vaccines, because uh, it has the potential to save, you know, millions of lives. And we've got to thank Dolly Parton for giving Vanderbilt University a million dollars. That didn't hurt. No, no. I mean, that's the thing that I think plays into a little bit why this was so successful. Uh, you know, early on, when I realized we we're going to need a vaccine, um, you know, I want to put a lot of money on getting this done within a year. But what happened is a lot of people did put a lot of money into vaccines. Uh, and I think, you know, the collaboration between the world's best vaccine researchers and then essentially unlimited resources and funds to get it done was a big driver while we pulled something off that, you know, we haven't pulled off before. Um, as a world and, you know, the speed by which we are able to ensure these vaccines are safe and effective. All right. So I'm getting my second Moderna shot tomorrow and I'm not looking forward to it because pe people say that you can get kind of flu-like symptoms. So, so I'm not looking forward to that. I'm getting it on a Friday so I can chill on a Saturday. Uh, some people are skipping their second shot. I'm not going to, but what would you say to the people that say, hey, the first shot does most of the work? Yeah, I would say um, not a good idea, at least at this point, to skip that second shot. And, you know, what we understand right now is, you know, if you get that first shot, uh, there's been some extrapolation of the data from those studies that got these vaccines approved. Uh, and you do get some immunity. Now, uh, be perfectly clear, you don't really get any immunity until after that 10 to 14 day window, even after that first shot. Right. Uh, you do get some immunity there. But we haven't yet had robust studies that look at specifically one-dose regimens. Uh, you know, how much immunity do you get? Uh, do we get protection against variants? How long does it last? Um, so, you know, one shot is better than no shot. But, you know, quite frankly, if one shot worked, we would change the two-shot regimen to one shot. It would be way cheaper to immunize the United States. We'd get it done way more quickly. Uh, but the reason that that recommendation hasn't changed is we just don't have enough data uh, to thumbs up one shot and say, yeah, we think this is going to be good enough. Uh, so, you know, someday we may have a one-shot regimen, but right now I'd say get both shots. I mean, why shortchange yourself? You already went through the work of getting one. All right. So what's the difference with Johnson & Johnson? Why is that one shot? Yeah. So basically Johnson & Johnson built their study to say, we're going to see if one shot works. So um, the whole research protocol and the whole clinical trial that enrolled, you know, tens of thousands of people was really to look at that specific question. Does one shot work? Uh, you know, and it did. 
Um, we would want to see a similar trial with Pfizer, Moderna, uh, to say, okay, if we specifically say we're going to do one shot, uh, does it work? Because what you might find is dosage may need to be changed a little bit. Maybe you need more, maybe you need less, uh, things like that, um, that you'd want to get tweaked right to make sure that that um, uh, single-dose regimen uh, is effective. But I think Johnson Johnson, uh, it, was a, it was a good gamble or a good plan to try to do one dose because logistically it is just so much easier uh, to, to, to get people vaccinated if they only have to go in for one shot. How are we doing in Dane County versus the rest of the state as far as herd immunity? We're, we're doing better than the rest of the state. Uh, we have a higher percentage of people vaccinated in Dane County. I think, you know, almost to the point where it can sometimes be hard to find a vaccine to get in Dane County because there is such high demand for it. Um, but uh, we have a lot of vaccinators in Dane County uh, and their processes are pretty efficient. Uh, you know, we're able to do a lot of vaccines uh, here in Dane County, probably much more ability to do vaccination than even doses available, even at this time when doses are a little bit more available. All right. I uh, I caught up with a buddy from uh, Indiana, southern Indiana uh, a couple weeks ago, and he's not going to get the shot. And he's, his words were, I'm as healthy as a horse. Why take the risk? What would you say to him? I would say, you know, I've seen people that are healthy as a horse come into the emergency department with COVID, and at that point, they cannot believe that they caught this virus, and they cannot believe that they're that person that's not going to do well. We're talking about putting them on a ventilator, intubating them. You know, and at that time, you can see the regret in their eye. They wish they could take it back. They wish they could have a do-over, but, you know, you know, life just isn't that kind. So, uh, you know, to those people, I understand that idea that I'm healthy, I have no problems, I should do fine. Uh, and a lot of people do do fine, but you have no idea whether you're going to be that person uh, who's looking at me uh, getting ready to put you on a ventilator. So just just don't take the risk because the safety of the vaccine um, has been well proven now. We've got hundreds of millions of people vaccinated. Uh, we're seeing no one dying from getting a vaccine. We are still seeing people die from getting COVID, and some of those people are healthy 40-year-olds. All right, so I'm overweight, have high blood pressure. It's under control, so I've been very careful. Uh, not Probably not perfectly careful, but very careful. Why do big guys like me have a more difficult time if they get COVID? Yeah, you know, there's a couple a couple reasons that we understand, and certainly we have data that says uh, bigger people, uh, whether you're overweight or obese, uh, do struggle more with COVID. There's, but there's a few reasons. One, uh, we know that people who are overweight or obese, their immune systems just don't work quite as well as people who are not overweight or not obese. I don't think we understand all the details of that, but um, that's something that's held true for, for, for years now. It's just something that we know. Uh, the other thing, particularly related to COVID, uh, is people who are obese, uh, more so than overweight, but somewhat overweight, uh, you carry more weight on your chest, uh, and COVID-19 affects your lungs. So um, they have a difficult time uh, breathing with that extra weight on their t- chest. It means that their, their muscles that help them breathe have to work harder. Their lungs have to be a little bit more efficient uh, to extract the same amount of oxygen as, say, someone who doesn't have all that extra weight. Uh, and that's what we see with COVID-19 patients who are obese. Uh, they don't have much reserve. They end up uh, having to go on a ventilator a little bit quicker uh, than folks who aren't obese. Uh, And a lot of it just has to do with all the extra work that they have to do moving that weight that's on their chest. All right. Somehow politics uh, came into the mask and vaccine debate. But we now know every former president, both parties and, uh, and the current president, they've all been vaccinated. Same with the vice presidents, both parties. They've all, they've all been vaccinated. All the living ones have been vaccinated. Um, has that helped 
take some of the skepticism away? How do how how do you feel like we're doing as far as uh, convincing more and more people to get vaccinated? Yeah, I think this is a good question, uh, and uh, I think it's telling to see you know what leaders do versus what leaders say, uh, and certainly watching what they do is probably a better gauge of what they're thinking than than what they say. I think we are making some process or progress. When, when I think of vaccine hesitancy, I really put people, you know, into three groups. There's the, the first group, which is, you know, they're all on board. They'll sign up. They'll get a shot, you know, today uh, if it's offered to them. Uh, and then there's on the other end of the spectrum, individuals who, for whatever reason, whatever they've read, are just convinced that, you know, vaccines uh, are evil and bad uh, and almost irrespective of data or, or any kind of logic that we can tell those people we're going to have a hard time uh, convincing them that this is actually in their best interest. Uh, but then in the middle, I think, are the folks who aren't the early adopters. Uh, they're not necessarily completely uh, convinced that vaccines are horrible. They just have to be a little bit more reassured uh, than, say, those early adopters. And what we're seeing there is um, a fair number of those people are starting to get vaccinated. I think what they wanted to see is not necessarily trial data that said it was safe and effective. They wanted to know people who got vaccinated and make sure that, you know, Bob was around in two weeks to, to you know, prove that this vaccine was safe and effective. And now with hundreds of millions of Americans vaccinated, most everyone knows someone who's been vaccinated uh, and, and nothing bad's happening to these people. They're doing fine. Uh, and those people in that middle group now are starting to get vaccinated. Uh, we have specific data, even from the health system. You know, we had pretty robust adoption of vaccines among healthcare workers from the get-go. I mean, they understand the science. They know how important it is. Uh, but for those who initially declined, uh, we did see quite a few of those later say, you know what, I changed my mind. I want a vaccine now. Uh, and we got those folks vaccinated. So I do think as more people get vaccinated, more questions are ac- uh, answered around vaccines. Uh, we are doing an, a better job at getting some of the folks who were somewhat hesitant to say, you know what, this is something that I want to do. If people haven't been vaccinated yet, how do they go about it? Yeah, I think, you know, this is probably the trickiest thing of, of the, the whole process is we have this very large vaccinator network, uh, but, you know, it's not, um, say, the most coordinated thing. So there is a, a bit of impetus on the individual who wants to get vaccinated to find a place where they can get vaccinated. Uh, you know, obviously, online portals are the easiest because you can log in there. You can check these things, uh, see if you can sign up for an appointment. Some of these smaller uh, vaccinators, some of these hometown pharmacies and things like that, uh, they require you to call. Um, but I think, you know, the important message to folks looking to get vaccinated is, you know, don't just call within a 20-mile radius of where you live. Uh, you may need even to call in a different county uh, just because different vaccination, vaccination sites uh, will have different availability. Uh, and, and it might change week to week. Uh, so I just encourage people to keep calling, looking around. We do know that there's people who have vaccine out there, uh, but it is a little bit of an Easter egg hunt uh, to find a place that can get you vaccinated. Yeah, and of course, uh, a, a lot have been done over at the Coliseum. Uh, so uh, I know a lot of people that have gotten in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these mass vaccination sites drive through. Uh, they're just a great idea. They're They're very fast. They're very efficient. Uh, it really is like how can we, uh, in the most efficient way possible, get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Uh, so, you know, we don't find ourselves dealing with what the European Union is dealing with now, you know, truly another wave of COVID-19 of a more dangerous and more contagious strain. Finally, uh, long haulers, people, and I assume that you've uh, treated or worked with people that are long haulers. Uh, yeah. We, we've begun to see some signs that when they get vaccinated, some of those symptoms go away. Is that what you're seeing? Um, not enough to say for sure that there's that an association, but 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 I have heard that same thing. Um, 
I, I think the long haulers are an important part of the COVID discussion because I think we like to think of things as binary. So uh, if I get COVID, you know, I, I either get sick or I don't, uh, or, you know, I live or I die. Uh, and it is not that black and white. There is this tremendous area of gray. Uh, we see these patients all the time. They had COVID. Uh, maybe they were completely healthy. Maybe they were older. They had comorbidities. But they have symptoms that they can't shake, and we don't fully understand why. Uh, and, um, you know, that's kind of scary to think that I could get a disease. I might fully recover, but I might have, you know, we don't know how long it's going to last, like fatigue to the point where I can't do the things that I wanted to do before. Um, that's an important consideration uh, as you're thinking about whether or not you want to get vaccinated or whether you're going to take on some of these public health measures, masking, distancing. Uh, it's not a, you know, I get it and I live or die. It's, you know, I get it and, and I, I might not be the same afterwards. Well, and I use the example of the singer Christopher Cross who, who got it, got better, and then he, he became paralyzed and had to learn to walk again. Yeah, I mean, and there's um, also, especially in the pediatric population, I've actually flown a couple that are really sick, this um, multiple uh, inflammatory sy- syndrome secondary to COVID, uh, and that's that's a really bad disease, too, kind of wiping people out. Um, you know, the, those young folks, and, it, and it's rare, it's not common, but uh, I just I just hate to see it. It just, uh, you know, for a disease that, it, you know, is largely preventable, uh, it's just really hard to see people having to struggle so much. Uh, because they managed to catch something, and uh, and now it's kind of changed their life. All the more reason to get vaccinated. Hang on the line for just a second. Dr. Jeff Potthoff from the UW, he's a UW Health Chief Quality Officer. On another slidecast to WIBAFM.com and the iHeartRadio app. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.